Well, it is a great joy to be here today. As you may already be aware, uh, Mark is taking some very needed and well-deserved vacation. And as always, change comes about. And the change that's happened this week is uh, Mike Thibodeau was to be preaching today, and I was to be preaching next Sunday. But Mike and Debbie got a little sick this week. They're doing fine. And so we switched. So it's my joy to be here today. I want to say just a brief word before we really get into our sermon about the sacred responsibility and honor to stand here. Uh, I, in my, uh, well, 45 years of ministry since I was ordained, uh, I've had the joy of preaching thousands of times, but I want to never take that for granted. Because when I stand before you and declare God's word, it's a sacred mission and a very important responsibility. And so I'm glad I get to do that today. Uh, I encourage you to be praying for not only your life today, but for this message as I share it, that God will use it. And be sure to be here next week and to hear Mike preach. If you are not one of our men that has been part of Moss and heard Mike many times, uh, you may not know he's an excellent communicator and you don't want to miss next week. It will be good. We're going to be looking today at the topic of a church is born, and we're looking at my favorite story in all of Scripture about church planning, and that's Acts 16. And as we get into that, I want you to know that the birth of the New Testament church in Philippi happened on Paul's second missionary journey, and uh, he left Troas and with a vision that God gave him, he heads toward Macedonia, which is today what we would know as northern Greece. And there he ends up in the city of Philippi. This message today is really a message about church starting and a message about church growth and a message about church health. Because you see the same prerequisites and principles and truths that affect one of those affects all of those. Because God's mission for the church is always the same. And so today, this message has two aims. One, it's aimed at us as a church and as a new church, just three and a half years old. But it's also aimed at us as individuals because everything we're going to say today relates not only to the church corporate, but it relates to us individual Christians. We're going to do a little different thing than we normally have done in the past we're going to look at all of our scripture right as a bulk up front. And so if you follow on the screen, I'm going to be reading these passages. We're in Acts 16, and uh, it's a pretty long text, so I've highlighted some scriptures we're going to share together. And we're starting in verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer and we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. And as she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She was baptized along with other members of her household and she asked us to be her guest. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay in my home. And she urged us until we agreed. And then picking up, 
in the next verse 16, one day as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a demon-possessed slave girl. She was a fortune teller who earned a lot of money from her masters. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God and they have come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul finally got exasperated, so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her, and instantly it left her. Verse 19, her master's hope of wealth was now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews, they shouted to the city officials. They are teaching customs that are illegal for us as Romans to practice. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So the jailer put them in the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself, but Paul shouted to him, Stop, don't kill yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household was immediately baptized. He brought them to his home and set a meal before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. And then in verse 40, when Paul and Silas had left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia, and they were met with believers and encouraged them once more, and then they left town. The background for what we're sharing today is that Lydia's family, possibly and probably the slave girl, the Philippian jailer and his family, all of these people and maybe others became the core group for the birth and the development of a church at Philippi. We might not on the surface realize how significant that was, but I want to share a bit of a comparison for you between Philippi and the PMW, the Pacific Northwest. Philippi was a great city of commerce and secularism. It was a very secular, heathen place. It was also the gateway of Europe, the gateway to Europe. It was really considered almost like a miniature Rome, and it was named for Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. But most significantly, Philippi became the birthplace of European Christianity. Now, what about the Pacific Northwest? I read a book some years ago called The Day America Told the Truth. 
And it was a book that did a very comprehensive survey of our region. And our region in this survey came out first place in the following five things. We are first in America in losing our virginity. We're first in America in the number of sociopaths. Doesn't that encourage you? <laughs> we are first in America in people goofing off at work. I hope you're not one of them. We're first in America in the number of people claiming atheism. And we're the first in America in giving the least to charity. I don't know all that Philippi was about, but I think we might share some common ground with them. Back to the text that we're going to be talking from today. After this Macedonian mission call, Paul's in Troas, he has a vision. And the vision is a man standing saying, come over to Macedonia. So after that call, Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke all go to Philippi to evangelize and congregationalize. I have a dear friend that's with the Lord, uh, Randy. I don't know if you ever knew him or not, uh, a little older than Randy, but uh, 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 Gerald Palmer was the vice president of the old home mission board of our denomination, now called North American Mission Board. And Gerald Palmer created the word congregationalize. And it's really a great word because it's what we're doing every Sunday. And it's what happens every time a new church is born and as the church continues to exist, it needs to be part of evangelizing and congregationalizing. And that's what took place in this passage. Today there are five truths or five realities or five conditions for how a church is birthed and a church develops with health and balance. And so we're going to jump right into those now and talk about them. The first one is a church is born when an effective witness is faithfully given. There are two great accounts of this happening in Acts 16. One is Lydia in verse 13. Lydia was, as far as we know, the first convert to Christ in Europe. But even more significantly, do you realize that the chances are pretty strong that if the gospel had not gone to Philippi, and Lydia had not given her life to Christ, and this church had not been started in Philippi, we might not be Christ followers today. For you see, from that beginning, the gospel spread all over Europe, and most of us in America would trace our roots back to the UK and back to Europe. And so the gospel began to come our direction that day at Philippi. Isn't that amazing? Aren't you glad? I love history. And I'm so glad that as we look back, we can see the hand of God moving throughout history, that one day we might be here in America evangelizing and congregationalizing. Second account in this passage, of course, is the jailer. And uh, we're going to talk more uh, about him as we go along in verse 30 through 33. We know that uh, after the earthquake, the jailer uh, came to faith in Christ. And then possibly this slave girl, uh, we'll talk a little bit about her, we don't know for sure, but we do know that the demon in her was cast out. It's very possible she then gave her life to Christ and became part of this core group that we've mentioned. 
Christianity's birth, as well as its continued existence, is by necessity dependent on its constant and effective witness. I want to ask you a favor today, and that is don't tune out now. If you're a veteran church person, if you've known Christ for a good while, you probably have heard more than just a mention or two about our being a witness for Christ. And it's so easy, I know for me, and maybe for you, when you hear a pastor start to do that, you go, oh yeah, heard this, been there, done that. Don't need to listen anymore. But I encourage you to stay tuned in because we're talking here when we talk about an effective, faithful witness being given. We're talking about both individual and corporate witness. Uh, the church has a witness, but we also as individuals have a witness. An effective, faithful gospel witness is not a church program. It's not a method or a structure of what we say and how we say it, but it's a lifetime, everyday commitment to live out the Christian life before others and tell out the gospel message to others. Let me give you two examples of that. One we call the Great Commission in Matthew 28, and we're told there that it's the charge to God's church and to God's people to make disciples of all nations. You know, some religions, it's like this is what we believe. If you want it, you can take it. If you take it, fine. If you don't, we don't care. But that's not who Christians are. That's not what the church of Jesus Christ is about. We have a mandate from our founder to make disciples of all nations. And I want to tell you today that the church that's not going to the ends of the earth is headed to the graveyard. The church that's not going to the ends of the earth may not realize it, but it's already starting to die. Because God has so designed his church that we're to always be about taking the gospel to those who don't yet have it and know it. The second thing I would say about us living out the Christian life and telling out the gospel message to others is that a passage in Matthew 8, 4 says this, your cleansed and grateful life will bear witness to what I, that's Christ, have done. Your cleansed and grateful life will bear witness to what I have done. You see, it's not an either or. It's a both and. It's not just that we're to tell the gospel, and it's not just that we're to live the gospel. It's both. And I've heard people say, and I understand why they say it, I've heard people say, well, my life is my Christian witness. I hope that's not true of you. I hope your life's a witness, but I hope that's not all your witness. Because you see, if our life is our only witness, there are people that will go to hell never knowing why you're different. But our witness needs to be backed up by our life. And if you're witnessing to people about Jesus and your life denies everything you say, it's a harmful Christian witness. And it reminds us that all of us have a responsibility to make sure that our life is in keeping with God's plan and is a witness for God. Because when that's true, then what we say about knowing Christ and coming to faith in Christ is validated and is authentic and is believable. Very important point for us. I'm going to tell you a number of stories today about church planning that come from 
mine and Joyce's experience because I know those well, and if they can help you understand what we're talking about today, then, then I'll be happy. When we were church planting in Bellingham, Washington, many years ago, I would go fishing with lost men and brand new Christians to disciple them. And our church looked at the opportunities to create events and experiences that would equip the church members to share their witness for Jesus Christ. Those things are so very important. And it gives me the opportunity to remind you that on July the 23rd, Mark last week said the 26th, and he didn't realize he did it probably, but it's actually Saturday, July 23rd, Mike Thibodeau is going to be leading us in a training event. It's going to be awesome. I know because I know Mike. He's been a friend for 20 years. It's going to be a great opportunity to learn how to better share your faith. And I guarantee you, he's not going to put you on a guilt trip. It's going to be a great training event. You'll be hearing more about that as we go along. But go ahead and put it on your calendar now, the 23rd of July. And if you are part of Go Church, if you're a member, a regular tender, do everything you can to be here that day because God will use it greatly in your life. Second, a church is born, a church is healthy, a church is growing when hungry hearts willingly respond, when hungry hearts willingly respond. This is a great missions principle, and the principle is this. It is that not everybody is going to come to faith in Christ. The truth is that not everybody is ready to give their life to Christ, but there are always many people that are. And we live in the most unchurched states in America, Washington, Oregon, and, you know, generally speaking, I'm rounding this off at various different places in the Northwest, but generally speaking, eight out of ten Northwesterners do not have an involvement with Christianity. Eight out of ten would say, I'm not Mormon, I'm not Jehovah's Witness, I'm not Catholic, I'm not Protestant, I'm not New Age, I'm not anything. You know, our predominant religion in the Northwest is nothing. Why am I reminding you of that? I'm reminding you of that because sometimes, if we're not careful, we fall into the trap of the enemy in believing that nobody is interested in the gospel and nobody wants to know Christ. That's a lie out of hell. People are out there that you know and I know that are looking for someone to help them find what they're looking for. They may not even know they're looking yet, and they may not even know what they're looking for is Jesus, but they are needing our help, and those people exist. And it's very important for us to realize that. In fact, in John 4, 35 and 36, the Bible says the fields are already ripe for harvest, the fruit is people brought to eternal life. I want to read that again. The fields are already ripe to harvest. The fruit is people brought to eternal life. This Philippian jailer, he was having an emergency life experience. I don't know whether that guy was interested in anything before the earthquake came, but after it hit, and all the doors flung open, he quickly realized, I'm in trouble, because if you were a Roman jailer and you lost your prisoners, uh, 
they put you to death. And so he draws his sword, and he's about to take his own life because he's desperate. And when Jeff Orbs preached here about a month or so ago, you may remember he talked about when you can effectively share your faith. And one of the things he mentioned is when people are in emergency situations or desperate situations or health uh, problems and difficulties. And so we as Christians need to always be looking for folks that might be open to our witness. I know some of you today are sitting here and you're saying, well, you know, yeah, that's fine for pastors and that's fine for Connor and that's fine for, for uh, Bill and that's fine for Randy and that's fine for Russell. But that's just not me. Let me give you a simple way you can have opportunities to share Christ. Pray and say, God, I don't know I can do it great. I don't know that I might not mess up, but if you will bring people across my path that need to know Jesus, I'll do my best to share your love with them. I guarantee you, you do that, you'll be surprised at the opportunities. I wish I had time to tell you stories from mine and Joyce's life of how that's happened. But if you pray, God will give you the opportunities. And the way that often happens is we pray for opportunities and then God starts giving them and we realize how many we've missed in the past. Oh my, it brings me great regret to tell you I've missed a lot of chances to share Jesus with people. But I have a new day today and tomorrow and the next day to look for those opportunities that God might bring. The story here that we're reading of both Lydia and of the Philippian jailer is one of success in missions where people responded. Our efforts ought to focus, you see, on where people are open and where God's Spirit is working. Too many Christians and too many churches are business as usual, are not serious about looking and seeking for new opportunities where God is at work in people's lives. When we were church planning in Bellingham, uh, my wife one day said, I'm going next door. We lived in a uh, low-income government housing project. It was brand new when we moved in, and each unit was a duplex. And so Joyce said, I'm going next door, and I'm going to talk to Robin. Robin was an 18-year-old uh, young lady. She had a, a, a young child. She was not married and didn't have a husband, didn't have a man in her life. And Joyce went over and talked with her. They had talked many times before, and Joyce was able to share the gospel with her, and Robin gave her life to Christ. Now, Robin is what we call a person of peace. We didn't know it, but Robin was the domino that God was going to use to reach many other people. Because after Robin came to faith in Christ, her older sister Tracy, who was a, a bank manager, Tracy came to Christ. And then Terry, their mother, came to Christ. And George, Robin's boyfriend of sorts, he came to Christ. And then their brother Peter, and then their sister Karen, and then their brother Jerry. And then one day, when Robin's father of her child got out of prison, he came back to Bellingham and he gave his life to Christ. What am I telling you? I'm telling you that that first witness to Robin had implications that we could have never imagined. 
to tell you another story. In 1977, I, I can't get away from the fact that I'm an old guy because when I use these dates, I don't know most of you are thinking, my word, I don't, I don't know anything about 1977. I wasn't alive then. Well, in 1977, Joyce and I came to Mount Vernon, Washington. It's what they called way back then a summer missions practicum, Randy. And we came to Mount Vernon, Washington. It was a nine-month-old, brand-new church start, and it was just thriving. They had nine members. And that summer, we spent three months there. It was supposed to only be 10 weeks, but we couldn't leave because God was just up to so much. And that summer, we did an old-school thing. We went door-to-door in communities and took a survey. And we asked people questions like, are you involved in a church anywhere? I think one of the questions was, uh, if you were to decide to go to a church, what would you want to find when you went there? And so we would do this survey, and where people were open to maybe talk again, we would ask if we could come back, and most people weren't. But I remember one day we went to this apartment, and a young man about 20 comes to the door. We did the survey with him. He seemed very open, very receptive, and we said, would you like it if maybe we came back and talked with you? He said, man, that'd be great. So we went back, we went in their living room, It was him and his girlfriend, they were living together, just young kids, or at least I would consider them that now. And uh, we told them what it meant to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And to our utter amazement, as we went through the gospel, this guy would stop us and say things like, wait a minute, you mean Jesus died for my sins on the cross? And we would say, yeah, he, he really did. He would turn to his girlfriend and say, can you believe this? And so we went on and shared the gospel, and we got to the end, and we said, you know, I forget his name. It's been a long time. I said, would you like to give your life to Christ today? And he said, well, yeah. Who wouldn't? He looks over to his girlfriend and said, don't you want to do this? And she said, I do. And so they gave their life to Christ. They were genuinely born again and saved. And we got ready to leave, and he said, wait a minute. He said, I want to show you something. And he goes back to his bedroom, comes back out with a book, and he said, I went to this motivational speaking event a few years ago, and I got this book, and this guy gave it to me, and he wrote something here when he autographed my book, and I don't know what it means. Well, the speaker was Zig Ziglar, and in the book, Zig Ziglar signed it, and he wrote John 3.16, and he said, what is that? And I said, that's one of the Bible verses we talked about today. He said, you're kidding. And then he said, you know, we really don't have any Christians in our family, but I do have one aunt, and she's always telling me she's praying for me. (laughs) Well, it all came together, didn't it? An amazing thing that God did. And you know, as we think about people with hungry hearts responding, let me just pause to say, maybe today, you're a hungry heart. Maybe today you know in your deepest heart that you've never really made that commitment of your life to Christ. I've got good news for you. You can do that today if you would like. No pressure at all from this pastor or from this church, but we exist to help others know Jesus. And if today's message will help you do that, you can give your life to Christ today. The third thing we want to talk about is that a church is born when Satan is resoundingly defeated. And I want to go back to our passage there that we started with and just recognize what took place 
because it's a little confusing. Paul is out after Lydia and her crew get saved. Paul is continuing to share the gospel out on that riverbank. And uh, here is this demon-possessed slave girl, and she is absolutely harassing the Apostle Paul. You see what she says here, and you think, well, that doesn't sound that bad. She's saying, this, this is a message from the one true God and all. But what she was doing is she was interrupting and being an obstacle for Paul sharing the good news of Jesus. And so, of course, what did Paul do? Paul decided that he couldn't continue in this kind of situation. So Paul faced the obvious obstacle to God's plan there, and he claimed victory over it in the name of Christ, and he cast out her demon. I got a question for you, Go Church. Why do we think that today is any different? Why do we think we can start and develop churches without coming face-to-face in victory over sin and Satan and the obstacles that stand in the way? Well, of course we can't. Listen, you and I as Christ followers are opposing sin and Satan head-on, and it is a spiritual battle for the souls of lost people. Stop expecting it to be easy. It's not easy. I don't understand all that God is about. I'll have to be in glory for maybe some few years to really get a good grip of it in my feeble mind. But I do know this. Once we have given our life to Christ, our witness, our life, our church's development, our extending the kingdom of God with new churches, all of that has a bearing on whether men and women and boys and girls will go to heaven or hell one day. It's important. It is a battle. It is not fun. It is not always enjoyable, but it is worth it. It's worth it. And we must be about that battle. Why does God allow hardship in your life and in the life of churches? I hope you heard Pastor Mark's sermon two weeks ago on suffering. If you haven't, go back and listen online two weeks ago because he outlined so beautifully why we have suffering here. But as we think about a church being bored where hardship is sacrificially endured, I want to tell you about a couple. I don't know if Randy's ever gotten to meet these people. I'm not really sure if they're still alive. I've lost touch since I retired nine years ago from the Northwest Baptist Convention. But Alan and Juanita Elston were missionaries on the Warm Springs Indian Reservations. They did their work there jointly through our Northwest Baptist Convention and through the whole mission board of that day. And they retired after 30 years. Wonderful folks. I've been in their home. But do you know how many years they served before the first Native American man ever made a profession of faith. Eighteen years. I can't fathom that. But Alan and Juanita just kept going. They just kept preaching the gospel. They just kept loving people. And when Alan came to retire, he was filling out his report to the Northwest Baptist Convention and the Home Mission Board, and it asked the question, how many 
Bible studies have you led this month? And Alan put down zero. And he said, the Indian men are leading them all. Isn't that a victory? A church is born when hardship is sacrificially endured. When we were in Bellingham, I won't tell you the story and the event because it's too complicated and too long. I'll tell you the outcome was good. But there was a point at which a couple of years into that church plant, we lost one-third of our membership and two-thirds of our income. And boy, Joyce and I thought, man, it's just going to go right on down the tube here. It's circling the drain. But that's not what happened because after we had a key family and a few others leave and after we lost so much of the income uh, through members of our church, God just sort of blew a fresh wind into the congregation. And we started seeing people come and we started seeing the church grow and we saw God move forward in a great way. But we had to stay through the difficult hardships. I want to read one passage to you out of Hebrews that speaks to this for you and me today. It's Hebrews 12, verse 11 through 13. This is what it says. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful, but afterwards there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip and your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall, but become strong. Don't give up. Don't stop battling. Because others coming to faith in Christ depends on it. The last thing that I want us to talk about today is my favorite. And that is that a church is born where God miraculously moves. A church is born where God miraculously moves. Verses 25 through 30 of Acts 16 tells us about this earthquake. God brought the earthquake that changed the outcome of this story. Would we even be reading about this today if it hadn't have been for the earthquake? Probably not. Only God can save a soul. Only God can birth a church. Only God can deliver from an impossible situation. You see, you and I cannot control the sovereignty of God. We cannot control His mighty movements, but we can work in conjunction with Him as He acts. And isn't that what Paul and Silas did? These guys were beaten very badly. They're thrown into prison. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've just been laying in my cell groaning. But no, they were up singing and praising God. And guess what? The other prisoners were hearing it, and that jailer was hearing it. And all of a sudden, this earthquake comes, tears the jail apart, apparently. Everybody is loose from their cells, and here this jailer knows, man, something is happening here. It's big time. And maybe it has something to do with those crazy guys that got beat up and are still singing and praising God. And so, we have to remember that 
we're not about doing what we can't do. We can only be followers of our Savior. We can only be ambassadors for God. We can only be emissaries to carry out His plan. It's His plan. It's His doing. And I want to remind you that every single person who trusts Christ as Lord and Savior is God's miraculous work. I want to remind you that every Christian leader who rises to a significant task is God's miraculous work. Every financial provision to meet an impossible need is God's miraculous work. And that brings us to the Go Church story. And I just want to tell you a few ways today that God has been doing miracles here. First of all, the vision that he gave to Mark and Christy Ford that they received from him, that was a God miracle. It was miraculous. And the growth that we've had even in the midst of COVID is miraculous. Now, this isn't about go church is great and other churches are bad, but I just want to remind you that after COVID, church attendance in America is down 40 to 60%. Do you know that last year in 2021, from the beginning of the year to the end, we grew by 50% in the middle of COVID? How'd that happen? I can tell you how it happened. It's God's miracle. He has his hand on you and I in this church. The wonderful leaders that God has brought to go church. It's a miracle. I don't know why God has chose to, chosen to do that here, but he has. And then the starting of three other congregations through us, it's a miracle. I don't know how much you know about church planning, but if, if you cut me, I believe missions and church planning. That's just who God called me to be and to do. And Joyce and I, that's, that's our heartbeat. And I can tell you this, I don't know of another church in Washington and Oregon and northern Idaho that in its first three and a half years of meeting as a congregation is already involved in starting three of the churches. I've never known of that. But in Woodland, Washington, the Hispanic congregation, in, in Portland, uh, Go PDX, in East Vancouver, Makers Church, we're involved in three congregations. How in the world is that happening? I can tell you, it's a miracle. And last of all, the growing number of you here today, even on Memorial Day weekend, the growing number of you here today that faithfully gather each Sunday, it's God's miracle. There's an old song, some of you older ones might know, and this is what it says. It says, many will say that God no longer has control. Many will say that he can't move the human soul. But I've seen the change in one who's met him face to face. I've seen the one who's been saved by his grace. <clears throat> it continues, and the chorus says this, God still moves, God still moves. In the hearts of his people, God still moves. He does not sleep, nor does he slumber. God still moves. God still moves. As we end today, I want to tell you that in the 1950s, Dr. Billy Graham had a crusade in L.A. 
I think it may have been his first crusade. I'm not sure about that. But it was planned for a period of time, and then it just kept going on and on because God was at work. And this young woman came to the meeting. I think she was already a Christian, maybe not. Maybe she gave her life to Christ there. But she came to the meeting, and she was determined she was going to get her husband to come. And so she went to him. He was a prominent radio personality in the L.A. area. She went to him, and she said, you've got to come and hear this message. And he said, nah, I'm not going to do that. She said, why not? And he said, well, he had his excuses. But he said, if you could find a way to contact Billy Graham, tell him I'd like to meet with him. And somehow she pulled that off. I don't know how. And then Billy Graham sent the message back through the wife to this man named Stuart Hamlin. And the message was, I'm preaching tonight, Mr. Hamlin. If you'll come, I'll meet you. And he did. He was an agnostic, and he gave his life to Christ. <clears throat> he later wrote this little song. Maybe some of you have heard it. It is no secret what God can do, what he's done for others he'll do for you. With arms wide open, he'll pardon you. It is no secret what God can do. You know, the question today is, not is God still moving, because he's moving big time. But the question is, will we be open and willing to let him move in our heart today and through our lives tomorrow? Bow your heads with me. No one looking around. I have no clue what God is doing in your heart today. As I stand here, I'm absolutely convinced he's working in your heart, in my heart. And so I want to ask you today, if you've never come to that place where you completely turned over your heart and life to Jesus Christ, where you made a swap out with God and you said, God, I'll give you all I am, give me all you are, and let him forgive your sins, where you came to be willing to turn from your sin and trust in him for your salvation and let him become your Lord and Savior, I want to pray today for you that you would do that. If you're a Christian today and you're walking with Christ and even as maybe I've shared familiar things today, you have felt the Holy Spirit of God stirring you and you know that he's telling you there's some things you need to set straight, some changes you need to make, some actions you need to take. I'm praying for you today. Father, thank you so much for your word. Every time we open it and share it, it pierces our heart with your truth. We thank you for the truth that came that fateful day 21 centuries ago to Lydia's heart and to her family's heart, to this slave girl, to this jailer and his family. We thank you for birthing that church in Philippi. And thank you, God, for birthing Go Church. Today, Lord, for those that might not have never given you their life, may they right now in their seat just say, God, here it is. I give you my heart. Come to be their Lord and Savior. Lead us as, as a church to continue walking in step with you that you might be glorified and the kingdom of God would come to earth as it is in heaven. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.